Uh, today is uh, the last uh, sermon in our series, Grace Defined, where we're going over our, our three core values. And um, as I like to say, our, our, our values are our vision. We aspire to be these things, and, and uh, there's, of course, many more things that we aspire to be, but these are the core things of, uh, uh, that kind of drive how we, how we try to do ministry and, and things like that. And so today's the last day of that. Next week, we'll start our, our Series 1. And uh, apologies, there's supposed to be more to that video, but for whatever reason, it didn't download or whatever. I, I don't know. All that stuff is... I was going to say it's beyond me, but it's really not. But, but it, didn't, it, didn't, it didn't download, so... Um, maybe I'll put it up on Facebook this week for you guys on, on our Grace, Grace Facebook page. It's, I think it's a good video. So we're going to be in Romans chapter 12 this morning. So if you have your Bibles, uh, please open them up. That's where we're going to be spending our time. Um, as I said earlier, today's sermon is on generosity. And, and some of you might be thinking, oh, here we go. We're going to spend time talking about money and, and, and that kind of thing. Well, we, there will, we will talk a little bit about money, but if that's what you think it is, it's, that's not what it is. And so I just want to encourage you uh, this morning uh, that generosity is far more than, than, than money. And so we will be talking about a biblical understanding of generosity this morning. But before we dive in, I just want to take a moment again and go before God and ask him to prepare our minds and our hearts uh, as we get ready to hear his words. So would you bow your heads with me? Dear God, you are good. You are gracious. You have given us so much. Lord, you've given us this letter that Paul wrote. And uh, as we read it, as we seek to understand it, prepare our minds so that we can, we can understand it well. But God, empower our, Holy, our, our, our hearts by the Holy Spirit to, to embrace that in our lives, that we can live out this, this concept of biblical generosity as well. Uh, Lord, you are good and gracious and more generous than, than we can even comprehend. I thank you for that. I pray these things in your son's name, Jesus Christ. Amen. Pew Research reports that 63% of atheists and agnostics thinks, think houses of worship contribute much or nothing to all at all to solving important social problems. Are they right? Well, there's about 350,000 religious congregations in the United States. Now, it's not necessarily just Christian ones, but religious congregations. And the vast majority serve as some kind of safety net in their community. A safety net for, for people on social issues of all kinds. Uh, Grace has been that in our community for sure. We have, we have helped in, a, in numerous ways, whether it's Angel Tree in more of a, uh, a community kind of way where we serve uh, at Christmas time, where we, we serve children of, an, of incarcerated parents and try to minister to them. Uh, we, ha- we have ministries and programs throughout the year this past summer. We worked with Rocky Mountain Food Bank some. We, we, our children's ministry is getting ready to do blessing baskets to bless those. Uh, and you'll be hearing about that in the near future in our community. Uh, we, we've helped numerous people in our congregation that have, have lost jobs, racked up medical bills, you know, all kinds of, of different issues. And so Grace definitely participates in a whole number of ways in ministering in our community in a safety net kind of way. But as you begin to think about it, you can look back at Hurricane Katrina. You guys all, who, who remembers Hurricane Katrina? Anybody too young to remember Hurricane Katrina? We got it. You know, yeah, so, some of you older people are like, I'm too young. <laughs> no, you weren't, no, you're not. You just forgot. Anyways, uh, anyways, Hurricane Katrina, I remember it. My daughter's name was Katrina. She got teased a lot in school around that time. Um, but uh, Hurricane Katrina took more than 1,400 lives, caused more than 15 billion dollars worth of damage. The local church in New Orleans played a huge part in emergency services. 
Churches opened up their doors and their facilities became places where people could find shelter. Distributed all kinds of emergency resources. As a matter of fact, just 50 churches distributed more than 62 million pounds of resources after Hurricane Katrina. Of course, just a couple weeks ago, we showed a video about um, the opportunity that you guys might have to be generous uh, regarding Hurricane Dorian, right? Hurricane Dorian over the Bahamas has done a significant amount of damage. And people are without homes and, and, and suffering in a whole lot of ways. And all kinds of organizations are, are coming down to their aid. Many of them, most of them perhaps, are faith-based. Um, but we, we showed a video that our a denomination, Converge, uh, who we're affiliated with, we have a lot of churches in the Bahamas. And we are working through those churches, not just for the immediate response, but over the long haul. How are people going to rebuild and, and how are the churches going to minister and, and those kinds of things. The churches, church is, is responsible oftentimes in situations like that. In 2012, congregations in the United States spent, I want you, I want you to listen to this number carefully, 9.24 billion with a B, on social programs. 9.24 billion just in 2012. To be honest, we could go through issue after issue and, and, and thing after thing and find, and we, what we find is that, is that churches that are Jesus-loving and following Jesus are ministering to people in their communities and around the world, that are doing good in this, in, in this world. And here's the thing, and you begin to, you begin to again to listen to what the media says and what some say, and you hear statistics like 63% of atheists or agnostics think houses of worship contribute not much or nothing at all to solving important social problems. Are they right? No. They're dead wrong. As a matter of fact, it is communities of believers around the world that do more good than we can possibly even measure. As a matter of fact, it was Christians uh, Christian churches and denominations who started this whole idea of universities. And, we, you know, we, tell, we talk about going to college or going to university, depending on what part of the world you live in. That started with Christians and establishing universities so that people could be educated. Do you think about going to the hospital? Maybe you go to the local hospital and it's called St. Anthony's. And many hospitals have names like that. It's because their foundation is often because of the good work that Christians are doing around the world. And if you go around the world, churches and communities of believers are ministering to people, whether it's their medical needs, their education, their social needs or whatever, all over the place, helping, or helping people get clean water. The list goes on and on and on. And if we did enough, if we did just a tiny bit of research, what we would find is that Christians are doing good all around the world. You thought I was gonna tell you we were all doing a bad job, didn't you? You thought I was. You thought I was going to say something like that, but the reality is very different, no matter what the perception is. We have three core values here at Grace, and we are a part of this. We are, we are a part of this idea of doing good things in the community, but we have three core values, and I like to say our vision is our values. The first one is growth and community. Pastor Johnny talked about that a couple of weeks ago, and, and it, this is essential to our church, this idea of growth and community, discipleship takes place in community. Growing in your faith, maturing in your faith takes place among other people, other believers. And that's why we, we push life groups so hard. So I know for a fact, by the time that all of you all leave here today, you're all going to be signed up in a life group somewhere. I, I'm, I'm certain of it, right? 
Everybody nod your head. Because growth and community is one of our core values here at Grace. Consider me your spiritual fitness coach, right? This isn't a, you can't go to the gym once a month and and say you're getting in shape. You can't come to church once a week and say you're getting in shape, right? Spiritually, you need to be involved in a community of believers. And you need personal coaches, which are your life group leaders and things like that, to help you to grow in your faith and become spiritually fit. So I encourage you to do that. The second core value that I talked about last week was, was gospel impact. I apologize, we had issues with recording, so you can't go back and listen to it, but gospel impact. And, and it is a huge importance. I'm not listing these in order of importance, but just in order of the, of the way we are addressing them. And today, we're talking about our third core value, generosity. And like I said, you might have a tendency to think, oh, he's going to talk about money. Well, a little bit, but I'm going to talk about much more than money because the Bible talks a lot about a lot more than money when it comes to this issue. And so today, we're going to turn to a passage that's a little bit different for this idea of generosity. If you want to hear some, something that talks about generosity from a finan- more of a financial standpoint, you can go to 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, and I did a sermon about that this last summer, so you can go to our website and go back and listen if you'd like. But today, we're going to be in Romans chapter 12. And before we turn that, I, I thought we should define generosity. Here's what the Oxford Dic- Dictionary says. It, sa- it, says, it says, showing a readiness to give more of something, especially money, than is strictly necessary or expected. Showing a readiness to give more of something, especially money, than is strictly necessary or, it's, or expected. That, that might be an okay starting point, but as I looked it up in a, in a variety of dictionaries, I was like, I don't think that reflects what biblical generosity is all about. I think biblical generosity is, is something greater than that. As a matter of fact, it's sacrificial in its nature. Nature, The generosity or sacrificial giving found in the gospel is the foundation of generosity. And Paul spent the first 11 chapters of Romans presenting the gospel and its implications of that gospel for the Jews and then the Gentiles. And in Romans chapter 12, he kind of begins to talk about the therefore of it. He says this, starting in verse 1 of Romans chapter 12. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing and perfect will. Perhaps you've heard pastors or, or preachers or, or teachers get up and say, whenever you're reading scripture and you run into this word, therefore, you should stop for a second and consider everything that came before it because what is about to be said is based on what was already said. That's true here when we read that word, therefore, in Romans chapter 12, that first word, therefore, we need to stop and think, okay, what has Paul done in Romans up until this point? The first several chapters of Romans, he, he lays out the gospel in, in a really thorough but basic way. He, he, he explains how we're all fallen, right? We've all fallen short of God's glory. There is no one who is righteous, no, not one. And he begins to go through that and he explains our fallenness and our need for salvation. And then he explains how Jesus fulfills that need, satisfying the justice of God so that we can be declared righteous before him. We can receive the righteousness of God so that when we stand before him and are justified, that we will be declared righteous and we can spend eternity in his presence. 
And he, and he goes on to talk about that, and eventually he gets to dealing with Gentiles and Jews and, and how all of, all of the gospel plays out in those specific ways. And then in chapter 12, all of a sudden you see this word, therefore, and he begins to talk about some of the implications of the gospel message itself. And as we look at this passage that I think deals a lot with generosity, the first thing we should recognize is this. Sacrificial worship is the foundation of generosity. Sacrificial worship is the foundation of generosity. It's interesting, uh, you know, Christians are, call, are not called to a life of ease. As a matter of fact, I got to sit down with a friend of mine yesterday and, uh, and his girlfriend, and, and uh, she's uh, in college and, and going, going to school, and she had a philosophy class, and, and just through some interactions that we've had, uh, you know, in person and on Facebook and things like that, she, she actually messaged me a while ago and said, hey, I, can you help me with my philosophy class? And I'm like, sure, I'll, I'll talk philosophy anytime you want. As a matter of fact, y'all got want to talk philosophy? Buy me coffee, I will talk philosophy. But make sure you got about two to three hours, okay? Just, just fair warning, right? And so I said, absolutely, as a matter of fact, um, we, we scheduled the time for yesterday, and, 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 and I said, after, after we're at the gym, you know, because they, they go to the same gym, that's how I know them, and, uh, and, and, and they, said, they said, after the gym, how about we go and we sit down, so we went, my wife doesn't like sushi, so I said, let's go get sushi, because my wife wasn't with me, so it was me and them, those two, and, uh, and we went and, and sat and ate sushi, too much of it, by the way, and, and we talked philosophy, and she was doing a reading in her class, and she had sent it to me, because I said, just tell me what, kind of what you're reading, and so I can see if I can help you. She's a more of a science person, right? Physics, biology, that's kind of her speed. She likes really things to be really easy to answer. You know, like give me a math problem or something and I'll do that. And there's there's a clear answer. Philosophy, you have to, it exercises the brain in different ways, if you will. And so I said, absolutely, I'd, I'd love to help you out. And so we spent time eating sushi, talking philosophy, and she was reading uh, some of Anselm. Anselm is a, an 11th century um, believer, and, and he came up with something called the ontological argument. And as soon as I saw that she was reading Anselm and, and addressing the ontological argument for God, it's, a, it's an argument for the existence of God, and I, I just went, oh man, why did we have to start with the ontological argument? There are so many other arguments that are so much easier to understand regarding God's existence, and, uh, because this one's kind of complicated, and there's a whole bunch of kind of steps made in the argument, and some people don't think it works, and some people think it works, and all this stuff, and, but I sat down, and, and over the course of probably about a couple hours anyways, we began to talk about things, and we talked about Christianity, we got off, off track a little bit from Anselm uh, several times, and we, and, we, and we talked about the gospel, and about Jesus, and she's not a believer, and, and, and he, he, he's got a Jewish background, he's a Christian, but we talked about all these different things, and then we got to the end of the conversation, near the end of the conversation, and she looks at me, and she goes, John, I just, I just have one question, it really has nothing to do with the homework or anything, but I just want to ask you this question, I go, okay, what, you can ask me anything, and she goes, she goes if I were to become a Christian, what would that do for me? And I'm like, oh, yes. I like that question. And I've been sharing the gospel throughout the whole time, but I, 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 you know, I'm sitting here thinking, I'm like, okay, how do I, how do I, how do I answer this question and, and give her a real sense of the truth here? I don't, wanna, I don't ever want to present to somebody something that isn't what the gospel is all about when I'm talking about the gospel. I don't want to mislead them in any way. And so I looked at her and I said, I said, look, if you're, if you're just looking for, for morality and that's all you want, something that's going to teach you morality, I mean, you know, you're going to get that with Christianity, but can I just tell you something? It's far bigger than that. 
That's not what it's all about. It's not just about good moral teaching. It's, it, it's so much more than that. That's not the core of the message. And I looked at it, I said, honestly, if you're looking at Christianity, you're going, if I become a Christian, is my life going to be easy? Is it going to be filled with a big bank account and, and, and health the rest of my life and all those kinds of things? Is my life going to be a life of ease and, and pleasure and those kinds of things? And I, I, I go, that's, that's not what the gospel promises you. I go, as a matter of fact, in John chapter 10, you know, Jesus said, I've come that you may have what? And have it what? More abundantly, Right? I've come that you may have life and have it more abundantly. And that sounds really great, but you need to understand this. If you keep reading the text, the very next thing he talks about is sacrificing his life. So if you're looking for a life of ease, if you look back at, at, at what scripture tells us, you look back at what happened to Stephen, he preaches the gospel and he gets stoned. Paul follows Jesus and he gets whipped and he gets beaten and he gets thrown in prison and, and all of these things. Like, it, it, I can't promise you that the gospel is going to give you a life of ease. As a matter of fact, if that's what you're looking for, I don't know anything that gives you that. If that's, if that's what you want, that's not it. Now, I, I preached just like this too. I had the voice inflection. You said the whole restaurant. No, I'm just kidding. And I looked at it I said, honestly... I go, I think it gives a couple of things that are really, it gives a lot of things. There's a lot of really good reasons to become a Christian, but there's two things that I think are really, really important that you need to understand. The first is this, that the Christian worldview, the biblical worldview explains the world we live in. If you want to understand the world we live in, God will tell you about the world we live in. If you look at the world and you're confused and you look at why is there, why do bad things happen? Why is the world the way it is? Why, is, why, why, are, why are people so messed up? Why is my life so messed up? If you want to understand those things, you can understand them because God's word teaches you about those things. If you want to understand why we, why we seem to be wired for hope, you need to understand the gospel of Jesus Christ because that's what grants us hope. It explains the world we live in. And I go, the second thing is not only does it explain the world we live in, but it offers hope for the world that we can someday live in. Because Jesus came into this world and he offers us a new heavens and a new earth. And, and, I, and I even said this to her at one point. I said, you know, some people who kind of call themselves social, social justice warriors, I, I go, honestly, they should love the message of Christianity. And I don't understand why they don't. Because what God offers us, what God gives us hope for is redemption and justice for all in the new heavens and the new earth in a way that we cannot even comprehend it. And we certainly, as humans that are fallen, cannot accomplish it. But God can, and he will, and he promises he will. And that's the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. And he will redeem us individually as well. He grants us righteousness in his eyes because the truth is, we're all messed up. We're all in need of a savior, you and me both. I was able to share the gospel with her. But here's the thing, if you're looking for a life of ease, that's not what the gospel gives you. That's not what God promises you. As a matter of fact, sometimes he says sacrifice is necessary. And when it comes to generosity, and generosity flows out of the foundation of the, very, of the gospel message itself, sacrificial worship is the foundation of generosity. As a matter of fact, when Paul talks about this in these first couple verses, he says it, that, that when we sacrifice for the sake of the kingdom, it is an act of worship, and it is the first, first foundation of biblical generosity. And Paul calls this approach true and proper worship. 
Now, I know what you're thinking. You think you thought worship, because maybe you've been around church for a while, you thought worship was about music. You thought, I, I have to go to church to worship. I come, come in the doors. We get really talented people to come up here on, on stage, and they play instruments in a beautiful way, and they, and they sing, and they, and they do harmonies, and they offer these things, and it, and it helps us to, to recognize the, the significance of God, to spend time worshiping Him and glorifying Him. You thought that's what worship was. That's not what worship is. It's part of worship. Music is good. As a matter of fact, there's this hymnal in the, in, in the Bible called the Psalms, right? It's basically a, a hymnal. It's a bunch of songs off, that we offer, you know, worship to God that, that people sang many of them and still do sing many of them. But that's not what Paul talks about. As a matter of fact, music isn't even mentioned in this passage. Paul talks about something else. He talks about living a sacrificial life that the life we live is sacrificial. That is true and proper, proper worship. What Paul says here is not to the exclusion of worshiping through song, but in addition to it, the sacrificial, sacrificial life based on the gospel of Jesus Christ is true and proper worship. It is a sacrifice to God. As a matter of fact, those words, living sacrifice that we find in this text, they took on a different meaning in the first century. The idea of sacrifice and religious ritual was pretty common. It was much better understood. You go back and you read about the sacrificial system, which, which the people hearing this would be familiar, at least in some sense, with, with that kind of a system, if not the, the system we find in Leviticus and Deuteronomy and those places. If you go back and you read that, there's a real sense of sacrifice. Sacrifice wasn't get, just giving up something. It was literally taking an animal and sacrificing it, killing it, burning it, whatever, whatever that particular sacrifice called for. There was, there was a sense when they hear about sacrifice, that's what they were thinking about. When we hear about sacrifice, we simply think giving up something. But Jesus satisfied, he became the Lamb of God, right? He became the sacrifice that fulfilled all of those sacrifices that we find in the Old Testament. But there's a real sense that our, our, our life, it's a living sacrifice. There's a real sense in which we, we die to the world that is and we gain life when we put our faith in Jesus Christ and we become the living sacrifice and that is our true and proper act of worship. Well, sacrificial worship is the foundation of generosity. Humility is the first, first act of generosity. Let's go on reading in, in verse three of chapter 12. It says this, for by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourselves more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourselves with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. For just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we, though many, form one body. Listen to this next phrase. And each member belongs to all the others. The question is this, at least this is the question I had when I read this text. The question is, how highly should we think of ourselves? Because I don't know if you notice, if you, as you read the text, it's, it, Paul says, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought to. Well, what's that? How ought we to think of ourselves? And here's what culture's kind of told us. As a matter of fact, uh, you know, especially, you know, a number of years ago, I think maybe some of these trends are reversing in some ways, but... There was this idea that, that, you know, everybody was concerned about everybody's self-esteem. Did you notice that a number of years ago? 
It was a, it's all about your self-esteem. And you have to believe in yourself. As a matter of fact, we, there's a whole generation of, parent, of parents. I think it was really my mom's generation, but she did not participate in this particular way. That whole generation of parents, and maybe, maybe even my generation to some degree too, would look at their kids and go, you're so special, right? You're so special. We would tell them they're special. We'd give them a trophy because they showed up to practice, right? You're amazing. Participation trophies. We would, we would kind of go through this thing, and we, would, we were all concerned about their self-esteem because what we thought was that if they had a good self-esteem, then they'd grow up to be well-adjusted people. And so we kind of built a, a, a bubble around them and tried to protect them from everything. Like I said, my mom did not participate in this particular act of parenting. As a matter of fact, if she saw a bubble, she was the first to pop it. You know what I'm saying? Like she goes, John, you're not that special, dude. You got to work harder. That's the, that's the household I grew up in. But we built this idea, and, and even today, as, as culture looks at us, it, it, it says you got to believe in yourself. You got to accept who you are. You're great and wonderful just the way that you are. And the Bible comes along, and God comes along and says, guess what? You're not that special. You're like every other fallen human being in need of a Savior. The Bible comes along and says, it says look, you got issues, and you need Jesus. The Bible comes along and doesn't really sugarcoat anything. It says things like, there is no one righteous, no, not one. There is no one who seeks God. And all have fallen short of the glory of God. And all means all. It means you and me. The Bible comes along and says something a little bit different. And so Paul comes here and says, you ought not to think more highly of yourself than you ought. Well, how, how, how ought I think of myself? It's hard to say that word. Ought. How odd I think of myself, Paul. And here's the great thing is he answers the question. How do we measure that? So I'm going to give you three things that I think we find in this text that help us measure ourselves. And it requires humility. And the first one is this, sober judgment. Sober judgment. Paul says you have to have sober judgment when you evaluate yourself. By the way, evaluating yourself is a good thing. You should do that. Right? We should, we, should, we should do that in all kinds of different ways. We certainly should do that in our jobs. and We should do that as, as husbands, as, as wives, as, as, as parents, as whatever, whatever roles we have in life. If we want to, be, to, to continue to improve and to be God-honoring in those roles, we should spend time evaluating that in our life. And hey, God, how am I doing? Am I, am, I, am I doing well with this? Now, this isn't a workspace salvation. There's a difference between justification and sanctification justification is that moment when you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ and you say, I am in need of a savior. Jesus saved me through the blood he shed. He died. He was buried. He rose again. He's coming back again. He's going to establish his kingdom. And I need that for redemption in my life. That's justification. That moment when you put your faith in him, you receive the righteousness of Jesus Christ. You don't earn it. You receive it. It's a free gift. And you, that way, when you stand before God on that day that will come, when there is judgment, you will be able to say, I am righteous, not because I earned it, but because I have the righteousness of Jesus, and God will recognize that, and you have been declared righteous and holy. That's justification. Sanctification is the, the rest of our lives we spend bringing our life into alignment with that which has already been declared in justification. In other words, there's, there's a, a synchronistic aspect to it where I work, I work with God. The Holy Spirit's working on me. God's working on me. He convicts me at times. He encourages me at times. He does the things necessary into my life, and it's good for me to evaluate my life and to go, am I 
being God-honoring in all that I am doing? Am I, am I living my life as if I am justified or am I falling off the wagon somewhere and I need to correct that? That's okay. That's good. We should do that. That's a good thing to do in our spiritual life, but we should have sober judgment. What does that mean? It means have a realistic assessment of yourself. Be honest with yourself. It's okay to go, I'm not, I'm not actually where I need to be. As a matter of fact, God, God might accept me the way I am, but he, want, he loves me too much to let me stay there, right? He wants me to grow. He wants me to change. He wants me to, to become something that I am not yet. And that's a good thing. We ought to have sober judgment. We ought to have an honest assessment of ourselves. The second thing, the phrase right after Paul talks about sober judgment, he says, in accordance with the faith God has given you. I, I want you to think about that phrase for a moment. In accordance with the grace God has given you, the, the faith God has given you. The idea is God gives us faith. God gives us faith. And faith doesn't come from us. It comes from God. God gives that to us. It's a gift to us. And, I, and I, And I think the text and the grammar as you look at it suggests that he even gives us different amounts of faith in different ways. And it looks different between from person to person. We're actually going to see that and as we continue in this text that that God the outworking of God's faith in our life looks different and we ought to consider that as we evaluate ourselves, as we think about it, as we have that that humility and that sober judgment, we ought to consider in accordance to what God has done, the faith that God has given us. And the third thing is this, and it goes all the way down to the last phrase of the verses we read in, in verse 5. And it says, and the phrase that Paul uses, and each member belongs to all the others. In other words, recognize when you think of yourselves that we belong to each other. We belong to each other. Not only do we belong to God our Creator, we are here for one another. Think about that. You don't belong to you. Not only is it true that Jesus sacrificed his life, that he shed his blood, that he conquered sin and he conquered death when he rose from the grave, that not only is that true, not only do we belong to him because he purchased us in that sense, but we belong to one another. It's vertical and it's horizontal. It's both. Now here's the thing. A lot of us as Christians, and it's and it's, I, I get it. I understand it. I do the same thing sometimes, right? We go to a restaurant. We walk in the restaurant. What are we thinking? We're thinking, oh, I hope, I hope they have something on the menu I like. Maybe we already know what's on the menu, right? Oh, I hope they really prepare it well because three times ago they didn't do so good. They, I hope they, you know, prepare the meal that lives up to my standards. I want a good meal. I'm paying for this meal. I want a good meal. I hope, I hope the environment's not too loud because I'm really looking forward to some conversation that I might have with whoever I'm having dinner or breakfast or whatever it is with. And, and I, don't, I want the atmosphere to be just right so that we can have a good conversation. Or, 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 or boy, I hope, that, I hope that they have the game that I want on, you know, so that I can ignore the person I'm with and make sure that I keep up on the score to my favorite Twins game because the Twins are going to playoffs. Rockies aren't, just thought I'd mention that. But anyways... Right? So I hope they have the right game on so that I can completely ignore my family as I eat. Not that we'd ever really think that. Right? We go in, what we're wondering is how are they going to serve who? Me. And then we come to church on Sunday and what do we do? We walk in the door. Boy, I, I sure hope the music's not too loud today. Boy, I hope John's on his A game. He better bring a good message. I, boy, it's, you know, I want to, I hope I get fed. 
Boy, I hope, I hope, the, I hope the chairs are comfortable. Boy, I hope, I hope, I hope. What's that focused on? Who's it focused on? Me. And we begin to treat church as if it's a restaurant. Now I understand that because everywhere we go in our society, right, we go to, everybody complains about their cable dish, whatever provider, right, or their phone provider, oh, you know, Sprint, T-Mobile, whoever it is, whoever it is you got. Have you ever noticed there's not one of them that doesn't get complained about, by the way, right? Oh, their service is so terrible, then they they switch to another one. Their service is so terrible, two months later, they switch to another one. Their service, right, what's it all? It's everywhere we go in life, we live in a service economy. In other words, everything's about serving my needs, and we pay for it, and there's certainly an okay place for that. But when we come to church, it's not like that. It's not about who? Me or you, by the way. It's not what it's about. What does this phrase say? We belong to who? Each other. We belong to each other. That should really sink in. We, as a matter of fact, look around. Look at the people around you. Look, look. That's who you belong to. That's who you belong to. This isn't about you. It's not about me. It's not about those things. We ought to have a humbleness and a, and a humility about that. We should have sober judgment about ourselves. We should, do it in, we should assess ourselves in accordance with the faith God has given us. And we should recognize that we belong to each other. And that's what the text says. That's not John's idea. That's the Bible's idea. The reason humility is the first act of generosity is because it is the giving of ourselves to one another. It is the recognition that I am not my own. I'm not seeking my own happiness, my own success, my own glory, my own wealth, my own greatness, my own comfort, my own whatever. I'm willing to have a sober and realistic assessment of myself, not thinking more highly than I ought, but giving myself to others for the sake of the community of believers for the sake of others. This is the first, first act of generosity. So if sacrificial worship is the foundation of generosity, and if humility is the first act of genera- generosity, what follows is this, that we should generously give what God has generously given you. We should generously give what God has generously given you. Verse 6 of chapter 12. We have different gifts. According to the grace given to each of us, which, by the way, we should connect that with according to the faith that we just read that God's given to each of us. According to the grace given to each of us. If your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with, the, with your faith. If it is serving, then serve. If it is teaching, then teach. If it is to encourage, then give encouragement. If it is giving, then give generously. If it is to lead, do it diligently. If it is to show mercy, do it cheerfully. In other words, Paul comes along and says, you have been given these things, you have been given them in abundance, according to your faith that God has given you, according to that, God has given you these things, but therefore, the community, they are are not yours. You're not to own them. They don't belong to you. As a matter of fact, I was thinking about this, and how many of you guys love to celebrate birthdays? Anybody, anybody, Anybody take a birthday week here? Anybody, come on, be honest. A few of you, anybody a birthday month? Anybody do birthday? I just thought I'd tell you this is my birthday month. Could you guys tell my wife that it's my birthday month? Not just week or day. It's not day. It's not today. But 
No, it's, but you know, so we love to celebrate birthdays, right? And, and at our house, we're not huge birthday celebrators. We kind of like, we might get you a cake or something like that. Maybe if we remember, you know, our poor kids, they don't even know when their birthdays are because we just forget. We just change them every year according to when we remember, you know, so. And, and, and our kind of thing is like, you get to choose dinner. That's kind of your big birthday gift. Like you get to choose dinner, right? That's kind of what we do. Um, we get them gifts. I, you know, I, I'm exaggerating, of course, but. But we, we do get, you know, but they're usually not like huge things. We don't, we don't spend an entire month thinking about a birthday. But then there's Christmas, right? And everybody gives gifts at Christmas. And, but whatever it is, Christmas, your birthday, when we give a gift at that time, we, you give a gift to somebody, here's your gift. What do we expect that person to do with the gift? Receive it. And then they do what? They, they, they use it. They keep it. They own it, right? It's theirs for the taking, Right? It's, it's theirs to have for their enjoyment in some way or another. As a matter of fact, you ever bought socks for somebody for, for, for a gift? At, at sometime? Come on, be honest. You bought, I love, you know, give me Birkenstock. You know, I'm just saying. Anyways, well, wait, like socks are great gifts. Don't give me, I love a good pair of socks, right? There's nothing wrong with that. But we don't buy socks for like one kid, for example, and we go, oh, I'm buying, I'm buying socks for little Susie. And then we just kind of think that, now, depending on your household and how things go, this, this happens, and I know that. But we're not buying them for Susie so that, so that little Johnny over here can wear them, right? Like, that's not what we do. We're not buying the socks for Susie so that she'll give them to Johnny. Now, she might give them to Johnny, or Johnny might just find them and put them on, or they get mixed up in the laundry or forget whose they are or whatever, but that's not the intent, right? The intent is that we bought the socks for Susie so that Susie could wear them. Or we bought the game for Johnny so that Johnny could play with it. It's his to give, but God's gifts are not like this. As a matter of fact, we always have to be careful because sometimes we receive gifts that we don't like, right? Have anybody ever received a gift you don't like? Come on, be honest. Really? Come on. Seriously, you've never? All right. Listen, you receive, so in case you think you just love everything everybody gives to you, liar. Um, <laughs> you, you receive this gift, Right? And what do you do with the gift you don't like? You re-gift it, right? You, you curse somebody else with the terrible gift. You re-gift it. But here's what God does. God comes and gives us a gift, and he expects us to re-gift it. You see, God doesn't give his gifts to us so that we can hang on to them, so that we can hoard them. He doesn't, he doesn't give us those gifts so that we keep them. They're not for us. They're for us to give away. You see, God gives us these gifts, and we, and we have these in Romans chapter 12 and, and, and other passages as well, but, but we have these, right? And he gives us gifts. There's prophesying, there's, there's serving, there's teaching, there's encouraging, right? There's, there's generosity, there's giving. That's a, a special gift. There, it's a lead. There's to show mercy. God gives us these gifts, but they're not for you to keep. They're for you to re-gift. You need to constantly, over and over again, re-gift the gifts that God has given you. That's why he gives them to you. And sometimes we look at the gifts and we think, well, I don't have the gift of mercy, so I don't have to show mercy. Uh, no, 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 no. <laughs> it's not how this works. You see, we're all responsible to do all of these things in the context that God has given us, but sometimes there's an area where we do especially well, where God has especially gifted us in that particular area, and we should spend a lot of our time in that particular area using that gift. That doesn't mean we, we don't give because we don't have the gift of generosity, but here's what happens to people, right? 
Here's what happens. People have a gift and say they have the gift of serving and they're exercising that gift and, and they ought to be if they're exercising it. If it's a gift of theirs, they're serving and they're finding joy in the exercise of that gift. And then they look around and they look over there and they go, they aren't serving. And so what do they do? They take the gift that they've been given and they go, well, everybody ought to do this the way that I do it. Or they, they have the gift of teaching, and so they're, wow, look at my gift. I got the gift of teaching. I'm pretty cool. And all of a sudden, they get pride in their own gift, or they get resentment because somebody else isn't exercising that gift in the way that they exercise it. And all of a sudden, the body of Christ that is intended to work together, and these gifts are to be intended to be given to each other, all of a sudden, it's fracturing because we're looking around and we're judging other people because we have a gift that they don't have. But you know what? They have a gift that you don't have. Stop judging them that way. Your gift was given to be given away for the body of Christ. We belong to who? One another. You belong to each other. We're part of the same body. There is diversity in the gifts given. There is unity in the Jesus and in the Savior that we serve and in the body of Jesus Christ. Amen? We don't all have the same gift, but whatever the gift is, we give what God has given us. I want to tell you a story about some people in our church, and they have the gift of generosity. And I actually asked them if they would shoot a video, and they, they, they felt uncomfortable with that and say, we, we don't mind sharing our story, but we kind of, we, we, we don't want it to be anonymous. And so they sent it to me, and so I'm just going to read you what they sent me. I believe that, genera- this is them, I believe that generosity is a gift from God, but as a new believer, I certainly didn't think that it was one of the gifts that God had given me. But gradually over the years, God has worked on my hard heart and shown me that when Jesus said it is more blessed to give than to receive, he was surely saying the truth. One of our favorite verses is in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 10 and 11. It says this, Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion and through, and through us your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. Once when my husband was out of work, we wondered what we should do about our tithe. We weren't bringing in our, any income and so the easy answer was to, to give until... Uh, was not to give until we were receiving an income again. But after praying about it, we agreed that we would continue to tithe on the previous salary for as long as God allowed us to do so. We were able to give at that level for over a year until my husband got another job. We never thought we would be able to do it, but God showed us in miraculous ways that he was with us every step of the way and was providing for our needs. When we first heard about the concept of becoming debt-free, it seemed impossible. We took a course on the subject, much like financial peace that we're offering right now, and after months of reworking the numbers, we believed that in 10 years, if we lived frugally, we could make it happen. We wanted to be ready for whatever God had for us. We knew that with debt, that would hold us back. We continued to tithe and live frugally, but God prompted us to do something that seemed crazy at the time and counterproductive. He was prompting us to give away all of the money we saved on interest, and so we did. 
As the interest dwindled, our giving increased, and somehow, by the grace of God, we didn't pay off the house in 10 years, but in less than five. We have no idea how God did it. But we know that he did because it was not humanly possible. By increasing our giving gradually, it was easy, and we could use and we could see more and more what a blessing it was and learned that we could not give our, outgive God. The more we gave, the more he blessed us, not with money, but with riches far more valuable and long-lasting. Seeing God provide in ways that didn't seem possible will grow your faith faster than anything other than tragedy. And I'll take generosity over tragedy any day. Once we were debt-free, we set a goal to, li- to give away 40% of our income. Four zero. 40% of our income. We've not always met that goal, but I can tell you that when we lose sight of that goal and become consumed with the cares of this world, our joy dwindles rather than grows and our stress level increases. What a story. Now, you might hear something I don't want you to hear. You might be sitting there going, what are you saying, John? <laughs> that we should give 40% of our income? No, that's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying that at all. That's their story not your story that's what god did in their story god enabled them to be generous now god gave them the gift of generosity maybe that's not your gift that doesn't mean you don't give but it does it, it does mean that might be the not, might not be the primary area of generosity for you you might do it in some other way other than financially and that's fine now you don't get to get out of the financial aspect well, you know why does god talk about money so much have you ever thought about that when it comes to, to this idea of generosity, why does it always seem to be focused on, on money? Well, what did Jesus say about money? The love of money is the root of all evil, right? Not money is the root of all evil, but the love of money is the root of all evil. Why does he say that? Because it reflects what's in our hearts, what we do with our money. He's not concerned about the money. He owns the cattle. He doesn't need your money. He wants your heart. That's what God's concerned about. For them, they went through this. They, were, they have the gift of generosity. That's their story. But what's your story? What has God given you that you can give away, that you can be generous with? When you ask people in our community about Grace Fellowship, I want one of the things that they say, I think God wants this of us too, right? He, I want one of the things that they say is that they are a generous church. I know this person there one time, and I was in this situation, and they helped me out of it. They were generous with their time, their treasure, or their talent, and they helped me out of it. Or they walked, me, walked through it with me. When people talk about Grace Fellowship, I want them to talk about how generous we are because God has been so generous to us. I'm not asking you to give 40%. I'm not asking you to give any percentage. You know what? You got to figure that out with God. But I am saying this, that God has given you gifts. And he's done so generously so that you could be generous with the gift he's given you, whatever that is. When we talk about this core value here at Grace, here's, what, here's how, we, how we define it. Grace and the people of Grace are blessed to be a blessing with all the resources that God has given us. Time, treasure, talents. This means saying yes to all that we can, big and small, with life and with love. Jesus was generous when he laid aside his divine privileges as it talks about in Philippians chapter two. And he put that aside and he took on human flesh and he went to the cross and he shed his blood and he went to the grave and he overcame sin and death and he rose from the dead. And now he's promised us a new heaven and a new earth where the streets are made of gold. 
He doesn't need your money, but he wants your heart. Let's be generous with what God has given us, amen? Let's pray. Dear God, you are good and gracious and holy and worthy of our worship. Lord, we love you.